This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ever walked by a shelf in your local bookstore full of books wrapped in brown paper? Those are blind dates with books, where you buy a book without knowing the title, the cover, the author, anything, and it's a great way to discover new books you might never have picked for yourself. We're giving away five blind dates with books. I will go to my local indie in Richmond, it's called Chop Suey, and pick five at random off their shelves to mail to five random winners. Actually, I've already done it. I did it this weekend. Woohoo. To enter this win- uh, to enter to win your own blind date with a book, go to bookriot.com slash blind date and sign up for our upcoming Read This Book newsletter, where we will send you a single solitary book recommendation once a week. That's bookriot.com slash blind date to enter. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 203, and we are recording on October 15th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Worthington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Boop, 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 boop. Hello. I think I just did the Blue's Clues music. <laughs> I wasn't sure what music it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since I've watched Blue's Clues. Yeah, but yeah. I, now, did you know that Blue's Clues now has a Filipino host? <gasps> That's amazing. Yeah, isn't it great? Cool. Yeah, that's super cool. Did you know that when I was this is this is a good start for us. <laughs> when I was at the bookstore in New York, we did an offsite event at the original Blues Clues hosts like fancy <gasps> apartment. I didn't get to go. My my coworker <sighs> went and she said it was bananas and also that he was super nice. Well, I would imagine. I mean, so. you never know. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, just... he seemed super. I don't even. What was his name? Steve or something? I heard a whole bunch of internet rumors that like he had died. He was in jail. The stuff. I think he just got tired of doing the show. Like yeah. A person. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. retired. Super anyway, nice apartment. Is, thanks for coming to our Blues Clues Hour. <laughs> tangent. Um, so, how the show works? As I mentioned, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So you can. Send us your reading recommendation requests via email at getbookedatbookriot.com, or you can drop them in the form, which is at the bottom of the show notes on the site. Um, you can ask us ask us anything. If you have reading recommendation requests for yourself or your book club, or you need a gift, uh, that time is quickly approaching the holiday season. You can ask us for those things. If we have already answered your question on the show, we will email you back. If your question is time sensitive, for example, if you need it for the holidays, please put that in the subject line if you use the email. If you're using the form, uh, put it in big letters in the first line so we will get to it on time. We do have a bunch of feedback. So this is from Cameron, who has recommendations for Caitlin, who is asking for books about early motherhood. Cameron recommends Like a Mother, A Feminist Journey Through the Science and Culture of Pregnancy by Angela Garbs. Uh, Also, And Now We Have Everything on Motherhood Before I Was Ready by Megan O'Connell. Cameron read it about one year postpartum, and perhaps it's better saved for the postpartum time because it's not, not a happy take, but it's not sad either. Beautifully written. Um, Cameron also recommends Operating Instructions, A Journal of My Son's First Years, and Some Assembly Required, both by Anne Lamott. I have read both of those. Those are really great. Um, Cameron also says, throw away all of the baby manuals you have. They made me insane. (laughs) Um, And then from, actually from Sarah this time, um, same recommendation. Uh, Sarah says, check out Origins, How the Nine Months Before Birth Shaped the Rest of Our Lives 
by Annie Murphy Paul. A popular science book, exactly what the title says. Uh, so it's a Mary Roach-esque type book about pregnancy. However, Sarah includes the caveat that it's not necessarily for the original requester, especially if the original requester has anxiety. Um, because reading about everything that can possibly go wrong with your body when you're pregnant is a little anxiety-inducing. Um, and then Ashley has, uh, let's see, feedback for someone who wanted to slash a book. Ashley recommends Security by Gina Wolsdorf, set in a fancy hotel that's about to open and someone is killing off the employees. It's written from the point of view of the security cameras. What? Right! I didn't know that. I've seen that book around, but I haven't picked it up. And I did not know that. I love books that are written from the points of view of, like, weird stuff <laughs> or animals <laughs> or, like... Just not the main character. I love that. That's so great. Okay, so I'm going to read our first question. Jen will tell us about our first sponsor, and then away we will go. Our first question is from Kayla, who just says, dinosaurs. <laughs> I've recently realized, thanks to having a little one in the house, that the world of dinosaurs has passed me by since my school days. They have feathers. There are dinosaurs bigger and meaner than T-Rex. Brontosauruses exist again. Help me fill in my knowledge gap with a fun read to catch me up on at least some small part of what I've missed in the dinosaur world in the last few years. All right. Before we talk about dinosaurs, let's talk about Quantum by international best-selling author Patricia Cornwell. Y'all, I've been seeing this around, and I think I need to read it because <laughs> it is about a NASA pilot quantum physicist crime investigator woman oh. who, yes, this is, hello, this is my wheelhouse. Okay. So what the story is actually about, when an alarm pierces the silence of the cavernous tunnels deep below a NASA research center on the eve of a top-secret space mission, Captain Callie Chase suspects foul play. As a NASA pilot and quantum physicist, she knows this could mean sabotage. As time runs out to put the pieces together, Callie uncovers a conspiracy as vast as space itself. The first action-packed read in an electrifying new series from international best-selling author Patricia Cornwell is action-packed all the way to the end. And I am so interested in this. <laughs> I love space. I love heroines who are in STEM. I love thrillers in space. I love all of these things. Uh, this just sounds really fun. And apparently this also is catnip for me. Callie has to dig into her own past and her vast cybersecurity knowledge to stop this terrible countdown. So if you two love space science, strong heroines, thrilling mysteries, and stories with a twist, you will probably love Quantum. It is available at Amazon.com slash quantum. And again, first in a new series from Patricia Cornwell. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. So dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are great. Amanda, this is like not fair because she I started talking before her, but she's kind of nailed this for you. <laughs> so I'm giving you like a slightly off to the side recommendation. It's from my own TBR. It's The Fossil Hunter, Dinosaurs Evolution and the Woman Whose Discoveries Changed the World by Shelley Emling. And this is a nonfiction book about a woman named Mary Anning, who when she was 12 in 1811, discovered the first dinosaur skeleton while just like hanging out on the cliffs in England. <laughs> um, and like her discovery changed the fate of science. And I had no idea this was true. She is also the inspiration for the tongue twister, she sells seashells by the seashore. What? This is so interesting. Um, and she was like, yeah, an early woman in fossil science. And 
people don't really talk about her, right? This is she's like an unsung paleontologist heroine that I had never heard of until somebody pointed me at this book. And I'm so curious about it. And like her work lays the groundwork for Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, which is obviously very important to the world. So this is one of those books about, you know, a woman sort of lost in the annals of history who deserves a place at the table. And it just sounds so interesting. And this is the kind of book I feel like that would be really fun to like pull out tidbits to share with your little one and be like, did you know? And then you could go like, I don't know, find an opportunity to go like dig around in the ground or go somewhere where there you might find like seashells or fossils and make it an object lesson. So again, that's The Fossil Hunter, Dinosaurs, Evolution, and the Woman Whose Discoveries Changed the World by Shelley Emling. Okay, I picked The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, A New History of a Lost World by Stephen Brusate, which I am about halfway through right now and I'm obsessed with. It's so good. It won a bunch of awards. It came out in 2018. Yeah, it came out last year. Um, and it is exactly what it sounds like, a, a new history of the dinosaurs. Um, and it's essentially uh, like a summation of all of the most recent latest scientific discoveries and research into the history of dinosaurs. So the book opens with the beginning of the Triassic period, which was right when dinosaurs became like dinosaurs when they when they first started appearing in the fossil record um, and goes through several instances of like Pangea splitting apart and how that affected the dinosaur population. Um, and, you know, of course, the extinction and the rise of all of the dinosaurs that we're all most familiar with, T-Rex and Brontosaurus and all of these things, Triceratops. Um, it's just super fun. And the author is exactly what I would imagine, like, if Timmy from Jurassic Park grew up and went to grad school and like, partied <laughs> uh, maybe a little bit too much and, like, traveled the world digging up dinosaurs pretending he was out, like, Dr. Grant, that is exactly who this guy is. And I love him so much. He is... Uh, a paleontologist from the University of Edinburgh and um like is very young the author's super young i think he's in his late 30s or early 40s but he's already discovered like 15 new dinosaur species he's uh responsible for but for a bunch of new theories about um the diversity of the dinosaur population especially in the triassic period which is when dinosaurs first evolved and the book is just very readable it's it takes these really complex and complicated scientific ideas and makes them you know really easily digestible for someone who's maybe only background in dinosaurs is watching jurassic park <laughs> and spoiler they do end up as birds so that was all true jurassic park is, <laughs> is non-fiction guys it's non-fiction okay so that is the rise and fall of dinosaurs by stephen brusate Nice. Okay. Our next question is from Liza, who says, my younger sister and I are going on our birthright trips to Israel this winter, and I'm looking for some great books to read during all the traveling. I would love if I could find a book set in Israel, past or present, that I haven't read yet. While I'm traveling, I generally prefer fantasy, science fiction, or mystery, but I will read anything anybody from Book Riot recommends. I haven't really read any books set in Israel or inspired by it, so I think anything you suggest will be new to me. Uh, all right. So I picked, this is maybe a little too on the nose, but I picked <laughs> Sarah Glidden's How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less, which is a graphic novel. And it is her, well, excuse me, it's a graphic memoir. Uh, it is her memoir of her birthright trip uh, back in, let's see, this was published in 2010. Yeah, so it's a little bit older, but um, really interesting. And this was the first book that I think I had ever read set in modern day Israel. And it was really fascinating. And it's also really, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of complicated 
political things to try to understand about Israel. And and this title, I'm pretty sure, is meant to be jokey. Like, you're not going to understand it in 60 days or less. But she's so she's trying to do that. This is what she's trying to do on her birthright trip. And she's talking to all these people, all of whom have different, you know, opinions and her own experiences are going against her preconceived notions uh, that she brings with her uh, on this trip. And so it's a really thoughtful and interesting look. And I thought it might be a nice companion to your own travels. And I would also think it would be interesting to see for yourself, like, what's changed? What's the same? Like, you know, how does it compare to your own experiences? And I love her art style. It's a really fun style. So I think this is a really interesting read. And yeah, definitely recommend it. So again, that's How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less by Sarah Glidden. Um, okay, I picked To the End of the Land, which is by David Grossman, and it's translated by Jessica Cohen. Um, David Grossman is like probably the most famous writer out of Israel. Um, and this is one of his most well-known novels. It's about Aura, who is an Israeli mother. She's like middle-aged. She's waiting for her son Ofer to be released from his army service. Um, and she, <laughs> in kind of like a, I don't know, attempt to like put her fingers in her ears in case something terrible happens while he still has his last couple of weeks left in army service, she sets out to go on a hike in Galilee and like, makes herself uncontactable. So if he, if something happens to him, um, he, she like won't ever hear about it. Uh, she takes on this hike, she takes um, her best friend Avram, who she also used to be in a romantic relationship with until she married her husband, Elon, who she is currently estranged with. So she takes Avram uh, with her on this hike and t- to tell him the story of her son. And as she's doing that, you discover uh, the details of her relationship with Avram, also her relationship with her husband and Avram and Ilan, her husband's um, friendship, um, because they all met when they were very young. The three of them all met when they were very young. Avram and Ilan served in the army together. Um, and then one weekend they like ha- kind of played this joke on each other almost and had Aura draw lots to see which of them would get a few days of leave that their commander was offering up, which she did. Um, but the result of that was that Avram was sent to Egypt uh, during the Yom Kippur War and was captured and tortured as a prisoner of war. Um, and so obviously he hasn't like had a relationship with the two of them since then and has missed out on this boy being born. Um, and it's kind of like this generational thing that's repeating because now she's waiting for her son to come back and she doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Um, David Grossman himself lost a son in uh, violence that, you know, we all know is happening in Israel and around Israel. I think he died in Lebanon uh, when he was 20. So a lot of Grossman's writing comes from this very, like, mournful place. Um, but he himself is a peace activist, and he's really well known for being openly critical of the Israeli government. But this is just a very, like, personal story about, like, a mother. And I don't know, I think that reading about grief and the personal experience of somebody who doesn't have any, you know, like military background so much, really the um, main character Aura, and who isn't necessarily a political person. She's just like waiting for her son to come home is um, a really interesting way to, to look at the history of a country. Like just looking at the mothers is always such a fascinating way to really see the effects of a country's political uh, and military efforts. Uh, Just look at the moms. Like that gives you usually a pretty good idea of what's going on. So that's To the End of the Land by David Grossman. So our third question is from Phasmophobic. Oh, I get it. 
Fear of ghosts. Okay, I get it. Haha, <laughs> thank you. So, Phasmophobic says, I find myself in the odd position of loving fantasy books about necromancy while also having a phobia of ghosts. I love the Abhorson books by Garth Nix, and I recently had the opportunity to read an ARC, which is Advanced Reader Copy, of Twice Dead by Caitlin Seal. They both are perfect examples of the necromantic fantasy that works for me. Do you know of other books that deal with this subject without tropes that would be horrible nightmares? Uh, poltergeist, haunted houses, etc. Okay, Jen, what you got? So I picked the recently completed Bone Witch series for you by Rin Chupeco. I love this series so much. And I do think it is adjacent to the Abhorson series in interesting ways. Because while the Abhorson series like touches on our real world, it also has this like very lush sort of fantasy world. And um and and the way the magic works is so interesting. And I feel both of those things about the Bone Witch series. It's three books, and it takes place in this incredibly lush, imagined world. It's a medieval-type world. You know, there's not a lot of technology, um, but there are women who are born with this power uh, to generally to do, like, maybe they can do healing spells or, you know, they have all kinds of magic, but a very few are born with the power to raise the dead. And our main... Uh, protagonist Taya discovers when she's very small that she has that power because she accidentally brings her older brother who has died in battle back to life during his funeral. Whoops. Um, but he is not like, you know, he becomes like her best friend, basically, and companion. Like, it's not like gross. Uh, it's not scary in that way. Scary things happen in this book, but it's not about the necromancy, it's more about the people that she uh, is around. So she has to go get trained to use her powers, and people are afraid of necromancers. Surprise! Um, and so they treat her in a very specific way. And what's so interesting about this series is that it takes place in two timelines. You see her at the beginning of her journey, and then you also see her many years later when she's basically like preparing to take over the world with an army of undead beasties. <laughs> and so you're like, oh, how did we get here? And it takes all three books to sync up that those two plot lines. But it's done so interestingly, and there's so many amazing secondary characters. And I just love this book. And I am, like, I'm not afraid of ghosts, but I definitely am sensitive to spookiness and, and nightmares. And this is not at all nightmare fodder. It's just, like, a really fascinating take on what necromantic powers might look like. So, again, that is the Bone Witch series. It's three books. The first one is called The Bone Witch uh, by Rin Chupeco. Okay, I picked Gideon the Ninth by Tasman Mirror, which you, if you're on Instagram, you've probably been seeing everywhere because everybody's talking about this book. And I agree with all of them. It's amazing. So this is like the weirdest, strangest, necromantic fantasy, like lesbian kind of love story. Maybe, maybe love, maybe hate. I don't know. Well, you got to read it. Uh, in space. So the main character's name is Gideon and she lives uh, in a... I don't even know how to describe it. She lives on a planet that is... Uh, the home of the ninth house, which is this, you know, it's very Game of Thronesy, where this empire, there are nine houses. And the ninth house is like the, I don't know, the, the keepers of death, basically. So she lives with a bunch of very ancient nuns and, and bones and skeletons and everything is magic and everyone's super mean to her. There are only two children who live on this planet, her and Harrowhark, who is the reverend daughter. She's supposed to inherit, you know, the, um, planet and the position is the leader of the ninth house. They hate each other, these two. Uh, and, Gideon has planned her escape. She's 
trying to get off this planet. She doesn't want to deal with this anymore. Um, you know, it's cold, it's gross, it's dusty, everything smells like grave dirt. Uh, and so she she's trying to escape, and Hera Hark stops her, uh, brings her in for one more, like, act of service, and then says that she's going to let her go. And that act of service is to go to what is basically like an Agatha Christie yes set up like it's uh, and then there were none so uh, the leaders of all of these houses all nine houses are called to this planet uh owned by the emperor to learn how to become a mortal essentially in order to aid the emperor in a bunch of stuff that he has to do which it's like all very political and you'll find out when you read the book so all you know nine people come with their nine assistants their cavaliers who are basically their bodyguards and gideon is posing as harold hark's bodyguard that's the service she's asked her to do and then they get there and they're supposed to discover like figure out this riddle of how to become a mortal and help the emperor and all this stuff but then they start to die one by one they're all necromancers so you think that like that wouldn't really be a problem because they can raise the dead. All of them can raise the dead and they should be able to figure out what's going on pretty easily, like after the first person dies, right? No, that's not what happens. It does not turn out to be a convenient talent. It makes everything terrible and wor- and like the worst. And so you're following Gideon as she, you know, explores her very angsty relationship with Harrowhark and then also all of them as they are just like trying to survive. Um, The book is very irreverent. There's lots of like, actual that's what she said jokes as if somebody watched the office <laughs> while they were writing um there's a lot of talk about like dirty magazines uh gideon is not as much as the people the leaders of these houses are revered and you know they have all these magical powers and they're all geniuses and brilliant um gideon does not care so like she is very disrespectful to everybody um she has to take a vow of silence at one point and you're just with her in her internal monologue as she's making fun of everyone it's amazing um I kept I kept getting like Beetlejuice feelings like mm. when I reviewed the book for my Instagram account I was like G- Gideon the Ninth like this whole book is like if Lydia Dietz were in space but the more I thought about it the more I was like actually this is like if Beetlejuice were in space like, actually <laughs> like the character of Beetlejuice Gideon is the character of Beetlejuice Harrowhark is Lydia Dietz that's what it is <laughs> so that's that's my analysis of Gideon the Ninth it's super 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 fun it is a bit creepy at points but I am also very sensitive to ghosty things and creepy stuff and I was fine with it so. Gideon the Ninth by Timson Muir. Muir? Muir. There we go. I love that book so much. Ugh, it was so much fun. Um, okay. So our next question is from Ellen, who says, I'm looking for recommendations of poetry or otherwise that is similar to anything by Amanda Lovelace or Rupi Cower. I've already inhaled the newest release by Amanda Lovelace and wouldn't mind something a little more lighthearted to contrast the heavy topics both authors write about. So I... Went to the contributors for a little help with this one because it was I, it's really hard to find lighthearted confessional poetry like that's that's a tough needle to thread. And Jamie Rochelle recommended The Book of Delights by Ross Gay to me. And I started reading it this weekend and I love it so much. Thank you so much to Jamie for that. I just oh, my gosh, this book is, in fact, a delight. It's a total delight. And the concept of it, they're actually technically more like essays, but Ross Gay is a poet, so he writes beautifully. And he decided one year uh, on his birthday that he was going to spend the next year writing about something delightful every single day. And this is the essay book that came out of it. It's not like they it skips pages a bit. You can tell because of the dates on the essays. But like, it's so lovely. And it's so interesting because he's not, I mean, he's Black in America, so that comes with a lot of weight. And he is not not talking about those things. He's not talking, you know, he talks about grief. He talks about racism. He talks about, you know, all kinds of things. But because the focus of this book is delight, 
he's sort of finding the space, even among the troubles of his life, to note the delightful things, even and sometimes because they're connected to those difficult moments. And it's just such an interesting project. And he's so good at writing. Oh, my God. Like, I am going to have to go buy all of his poetry connections now because he's so good. Um, and I don't think stylistically he's exactly a match for Lovelace or Cower. But if you love beautiful language and you love this idea of confessional poetry and you want something that, like, has this bright brightness to it, I think that you cannot go wrong with this. So, again, that's The Book of Delights by Ross Gay. Okay, I picked Wild Embers by Nikita Gill. Nikita Gill is a really interesting uh, poet. She is a Sikh writer who was born in India, and she moved to England in her 20s and worked as a carer for, like, a lot of years. And so she's got a, a really fascinating and I don't even – I'm not being very articulate on this show, but, like, a really caring, not to be too punny about it, but perspective and um, tone through her poetry. So I wouldn't say that her poems are, like, they're not funny. They're not lighthearted in that way of like, I don't know, talking about puppies or whatever, but they're not about, I don't know that they would necessarily need a trigger warning. But she is talking about like fairy tales and how that, you know, fairy tales can often be like violent and frightening. Um, She talks about politics, passion. She's talking a lot about like identity, female empowerment, all of these kinds of things. So, and those feel very like Amanda Lovelace, who writes a lot about feminism, even if it's not explicitly, although it is pretty explicit with Amanda Lovelace. But the styles feel pretty similar to me. Some of Nikita Gill's poems are written in like almost full sentences or paragraphs, um, but they are very easy to read. They're very Instagrammable, which is uh, Amanda Lovelace and Rupi Cower's poems are both written to like purposefully be shared really easily on social media. A lot of Nikita Gill's poems end up on like signs that you see people at protests, which is the same thing that happens with Amanda Lovelace's work. Um, and they are exploring similar themes, but it doesn't feel as necessarily um, autobiographical, maybe. Like the themes that Nikita Gill is talking about here are multicultural. They have a lot to do with mythology and religion sometimes, uh, not explicitly, but it's, you know, woven throughout the work. Um, and I don't know I mean, in as much as all poetry is a little bit autobiographical, I wouldn't say it's confessional in the same way that Rupi Kaur and Amanda Lovelace's poems are, but stylistically very similar um, and thematically similar too, but a little bit with a little bit of distance, I think is probably how I would describe it. So that's Wild Embers by Nikita Gill. Ooh, sponsor time. Sponsor time. Okay. (laughs) Hey, I don't know why I'm doing Blue's Clues today. This is just where we are. So our next sponsor is Change is the Only Constant by Ben Orland, which is in hardcover now from Black Dog and Leventhal. So Ben Orland, if you're unfamiliar with the name, is a really popular blogger and author of Math with Bad Drawings. And so he has written this book, Change is the Only Constant, which is an exploration of the intersection of calculus and daily life, which is very in my wheelhouse. I love that kind of nerdy, nerdy stuff. Also, I'm very bad at math. So anybody who can explain it to me in like, bad drawings, as we all know Ben Orland can do. I'm super here for it. So they're very funny. And of course, the drawings are bad. So he's got 28 mathematical, like, tale stories where he's showing the reader that calculus is just another language for things that people deal with every day, like time, you know, risk assessment, love, and of course, change. So change is the only constant. is about connections between calculus, art, literature, love, everything we do um, and deal with every day. Um, so it's not just math, you know, for math nerds. This is 
math uh, for everyone and about like and with the purpose of helping us become more thoughtful human beings. So that is Change is the Only Constant by Ben Orland. Go check that out. I want to. Okay. Um, our next question is from Jamie, who says, I'm wondering if you can suggest some fun action thriller type audiobooks by people of color, something in the vein of Dan Brown with puzzles and action, but generally just a fun ride. I like to listen to audiobooks while I work, and these type of books make the day speed by. Okay, Jen. All right. So I picked The Clockwork Dynasty by Daniel H. Wilson, who is a Cherokee citizen, and it is available in audio. I double checked. And it's actually got a couple different narrators because there are a couple of different perspectives in the book, which is cool. And this is... Okay. So imagine that you are an anthropologist and you specialize in like oldie time technology <laughs> and you discover when you're examining like a 300-year-old mechanical doll that there are like living, breathing automatons. Well, not breathing, but there are <laughs> alive automatons in the world. They have been here for centuries and they're in like a war with each other. So that is what this book is about. Uh, June is our human anthropologist who is very, you know, like early in her career. And she's like, I can't tell anybody any of this because they're going to think I'm crazy. Also, I'm being hunted now. And an automaton is trying to kill me. And this other one is like, maybe my friend, maybe not. I don't know. And then you go back to the 1700s in Russia when these uh, beings are brought to life. And there's a brother and sister kind of, it's a weird thing, but they are brother and sister automatons, uh, pairs. And in their struggles um, with each other and the world, you see sort of the world develop and like how they hide themselves and what their lives are like. And oh, it's so interesting. And so like, it's a little bit more uh fantasy than Dan Brown tends to get sort of but it's the same kind of thing and she's you know June is trying to put all the pieces together and there's a lot of peril and it is very puzzly and I think it will definitely satisfy that like action thriller adventure itch that you have um, and I really enjoyed it it's fascinating read it was so much fun so again that's the Clockwork Dynasty by Daniel H. Wilson Okay, I picked War Cross by Marie Lu, uh, which is such a fun, puzzly action adventure ride. Um, if you liked Ready Player One, I think that this is a good comp for that. It's young adult science fiction. It takes place in kind of the near future. Um, and it's about a girl named Emika, who's a teenage hacker. She works as a bounty hunter. Um, in this universe, the game War Cross is a game. It's not just a game. It's also like the thing that, like a cultural phenomenon. This is what uh, people across the world play. It's virtual reality. There are like real financial stakes in the game. And so her job as a bounty hunter is to track down players who are in Warcross betting on it illegally. Um, but bounty hunting is not like paying her bills very well. She's about to be evicted. And so to make some money, she decides she's going to hack into the opening game of the International Warcross um, like championship round. It does not go well. She accidentally glitches herself somehow into the opening ceremonies and becomes an overnight super famous celebrity because people, of course, think that she's done this on purpose, um, like as a stunt, uh, which was not the case. She was not trying to do that. But, uh, you know, she thinks, of course, well, like, this is it. I'm going to be arrested. My life is over. But instead, the man who created the game, whose name is Hideo, calls her and, like, wants her to come to his house. He's this really young, super billionaire guy. So she goes to see what he wants, and he wants to hire her to spy on the tournament because he's got a 
kind of security problem in the software that he wants her to, you know, figure out. So you've got this mystery that she's been hired to solve. There's a little bit of like, will they, won't they with her and the billionaire creator. And so she goes off to Tokyo and discovers this like world of like money and fame she's hanging out with these players she has to like go undercover um and she meets all these really talented gamers it's very techie and fun all while she's trying to figure out like who is trying to sabotage warcross and you know like double cross this guy who she thinks she might like but she doesn't know can you love a billionaire that's a book i'd read right there there's a romance novel for you. Can you really love it? Billionaire? I was just going to say, there's been some romance novels written about that. Well, those are, can you do other things to billionaires? Oh, which right. of course you can. Sure. But can you really love them? Do they have hearts? I don't know. I'm being terrible right now. Don't at me. Anyway, so Warcross, super fun. So, and it's a first in a series. So there are more and they're all on audio. So that's Warcross by Marie Lou. I love that book too. It's so much fun. All right. The next question is from Nikita, who says, I'm currently reading Mary Beard's SPQR and loving it. I was wondering if you had any recommendations for historical fiction set in ancient Rome or Greece. I read a good amount of fantasy set in those eras, but would love recommendations for something a little more historical and a little less fantasy. So we're taking it all the way back to my days as a Latin student in high school. (laughs) Including like we had uh, like a like a Roman festival one time and my group got assigned to recreate like some gladiator games (laughs) and it involved my stuffed lion uh, that I brought from home. Anyway, all very exciting. I was happy to see this question. And so I picked for you I, Claudius by Robert Graves. I am a huge Robert Graves fan, which is like a weird thing to say because who I write. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm not sorry. It's just true. His writing is so interesting. Anyway, and he wrote this whole series about the wacky, like, ruling Roman families, uh, starting with I, Claudius. And this got made into, like, a BBC miniseries and, you know, was, like, very big back in the day. But you don't really hear people talking about it much anymore. Um, And it's super interesting. So Claudius, who became an emperor, was actually a stammerer. And, you know, did not grow up thinking that he was going to hold any big position in the Roman Empire, but, you know, did. And um, and so this uh, series traces, like, you know, from his childhood uh, moving along um, through the Roman ruling families. And it's so... It's so meaty with historical detail. Like Robert Graves is a historian, first and foremost, who then wrote fiction about his chosen time period. And he like really digs in there. So I I think some people find it a little dry. But if you're a history nerd, I think it's super satisfying. And I do think he's really good at bringing these characters to life. And like you really feel like this is what it could exactly what it could have been like because of all the detail work that he does. Um, So I was totally obsessed with these books as a teacher. Teenager, and I remember them super fondly. And I think this might be the kind of thing that you're looking for. So again, that is I, Claudius by Robert Graves. Um, I also picked kind of a throwback. I picked The Ides of March by Thornton Wilder, um, who I love. This is the show where we express love for weird authors. <laughs> How unusual of us. I know. Right? <laughs> so off brand for us. Oh, yeah. I understand. Um, so Thornton Wilder is best known, I'm sure, for his um, play Our Town, which is like an American classic and I 100% snot producer crying 
Tears. I've seen it on Broadway. It's so good. Oh my god, I love that play. Anyway, um, so he wrote. He's not as well known for this, but he wrote a an epistolary novel in the forties called The Ides of March, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's about the assassination of Caesar. This is not a spoiler. You all know what happens to Caesar. So I'm not gonna... <laughs> but the reason why this book is so interesting, well, well, because first of all, it's epistolary, which you know was very popular as a um, a method um, in like the 18th century. And then kind of fell out of fashion. And so when he wrote it, people were not necessarily writing a lot of epistolary novels, which, of course, is uh, novels in letter form. Um, But it's also, like, sneakily a little bit feminist. Like, his examinations of Cleopatra and a lot of the other women who were religious and civic leaders in Rome at the time, who are normally ignored by history. Well, not Cleopatra, but the rest of them are pretty ignored by history. He purposefully brings them in to talk about their roles um, in the rise and then, of course, the ultimate violent fall (laughs) of Caesar. Um, And I don't know that there's much else to say about it. If you've not read Thornton Wilder, his writing is very sentimental, I guess, in a a way that he knows exactly. It's it's emotional manipulation, to be honest, but it's emotional manipulation that you don't notice while it's happening and you end up being like completely here for. Uh, And bringing that into something as kind of ancient and distant as Caesar um, is something that's kind of a feat. I, I mean, I don't even think like Shakespeare accomplishes that with his uh, with Julius Caesar. Um, I mean, it's a little it's not sad because you, you don't really I don't know when I have read Julius Caesar the play I've not felt very bad for Caesar because he was like not a great guy but you kind of feel bad for him in this book it's anyway I'm not gonna tell you how to feel I'm not gonna tell you how to feel about Caesar go read the book it's <laughs> the Ides of March by Thornton Wilder there's our show title I'm not gonna tell you how to feel <laughs> he was awful <laughs> all right our next question is from Michelle who says I don't read a lot of romance but I recently read Hot Head by Damon Swade because I heard about it from you and I really liked it I'm looking for something similar so I can stop rereading it LGBTQ no preference which pining friends to lovers etc I would prefer something without a ton of homophobia and with a happy ending I'm open to any subgenre. sex is fine but I'm looking for something with a good story too okay Jen what you got so I will preface this with saying I haven't read Damon Swade yet. And actually, this book is from my TBR. Whoops. But <laughs> it is LGBTQ and it is like enemies to friends to lovers, which is interesting. And I think you will really enjoy it because people will not shut up about this book to me. Like I can I've lost count of the number of people who are like, you haven't read this yet. Why haven't you read it yet? And to add insult to injury, I had a copy from the library, but it expired. And then I couldn't re- renew it because the hold list was too long. The book I am talking about is Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. It's everywhere. Everybody loves it. It sounds so good. One day I will get it back from the library and get to read it. And it is about what happens when the son of the American president falls in love with the Prince of Wales. OMG, royalty. Uh, (laughs) So, so yes. So Alex is our American protagonist. His mom is now president. And so he's sort of like the American equivalent of royalty. And he has had like a Haiti, like beefy relationship with Prince Henry uh, across the pond for a while. And the tabloids get a hold of them like uh, a photo of them having an altercation and this then affects US and British relations which is complicated and so everybody's like all right y'all I don't care if you're actually friends, but you're going to pretend to be friends. Like, you are now friends as far as the public is concerned. Like, you're welcome. <laughs> get on Instagram, take some selfies, like, pretend to be friends. And so they do. 
reluctantly. And then, whoops, maybe they start to fall in love with each other. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? I bet you can guess because it's a romance. It has a happy ending. So that is this book. I have got to read it one of these days. And I think you will very much enjoy it. So that's Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. Okay, my pick for you is The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Waite. I went with the L in your question. Um, I I love this book so much. And I think it will work for you because there is tons of pining. Tons of pining. Mm. It is friends to lovers. You know, it's a Regency, so of course there is homophobia, but the homophobia is more about how they have to be in the closet. But So it's not like insults or overt explicit hatred or anything like that. It's mostly a character study of the two of them. And that's why I picked it because there is, you know, there is sex in the book. It's very steamy. But it is a, it is such a fascinating story. And the two characters, like you're just here for their ride. So Lucy is the main character or one of them. Um, She is the daughter of a really famous astronomer. I always mix up astronomer and astrologer 100% of the time. She's a daughter of a really famous astronomer. Um, The secret is that the really famous astronomer was actually a little bit cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs a little bit, and she was the one doing the work. She was the one doing all of the math. And of course, nobody knows because she's a woman and it would not have been um, allowed. And so her father has recently died. Also, her lover, her girlfriend, has just gotten married to a dude and she's so she's just like nothing is going well for lucy her girlfriend is gone her father is dead she has no way to make any money um and so she finds a letter from one of the um women who corresponded with her father the countess of moth the countess of moth's husband was also a scientist and so her husband and lucy's dad wrote to each other a lot uh the countess is looking for someone to translate a french astronomy text um and so she's asking lucy's father to do that uh, not realizing that he's dead. And Lucy decides this is her way out, right? Like she's going to go to London. She's going to show up at the Countess's home, admit that she's actually the one who is doing all of the work um, and then like ask for a job, basically, which is what she does. Um, the Countess's name is Catherine. Her husband has just died. Turns out their marriage was awful. And so she's like not exactly excited about the idea of another brilliant scientist living in her house. Um, but... She accepts Lucy's offer. Lucy starts to translate the work. And along the way, they encounter a lot of pushback, um, not about their relationship, but about Lucy being a a woman doing mathematical work. So there are a lot of conflicts between, like, the local London Astronomy Society. I don't remember the name of it, but, like, the scientific community that is wanting to translate this text. They discount her entirely. Um, They discount Lucy's work entirely. Catherine and Lucy have their own conflicts to overcome, like, their person, like, personal, interpersonal conflicts having to do mostly with, like, their respective uh, traumas. But their relationship is just the sweetest. Like, it's it's so lovely, and they're so supportive of each other. The Countess is actually a really talented, like, a really talented um, seamstress, embroiderer, and dressmaker, and she's just a brilliant artist, but, and she won't recognize that what she's doing is art, and so Lucy really helps her um, with that, like, to recognize that just because the thing that you're doing is traditionally feminine does not mean it's not museum worthy effort and like that you're not brilliant um so they help each other in those ways uh you can of course like jen said it's a romance so of course they end up together because that's how these things work that's how romance works um but it's super satisfying because they have they're successful in their relationship but they're also successful in all of their business and scientific and intellectual pursuits in ways that are like real nice to watch because it involves a lot of really terrible old men getting what's coming to them yes. and that is never not fun <laughs> so to, good to witness also something that i really loved about this is like so the terrible old men get what's coming to them they have to 
I'm not going to spoil it, but for a lot of reasons, they have to realize that like they're just bigoted and awful. Um, but the author allows the one who is probably the most caused the most roadblocks for the main characters. She allows him to change, which I think is a little bit more rare. Like there's a lot of ways in which you can read romances where like terrible men get come up in. But in this one, he like actually apologizes and tries to be better. And that was so nice to read. Mm-hmm. Like to read a man, especially one who's very set in his ways, very powerful, very wealthy, and in his own right, like a really smart scientist, realize that he's wrong and that he's been thinking about things in fun- like a function what is functionally an unscientific way, then completely irrational and based totally on bias and prejudice to watch him come around and like try to make it better. It was just ugh. Right in the feels. Everything so in this good. book is just right in the feels. So that's The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Wade. This is the first in a new series. I can't wait to read more from this author. Yet. Agree. And that's our show. Hooray. Yay. Thank you so much for listening. Please go leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to your sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I am on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And I'm on Twitter as Jen IRL, Jen with two N's IRL, and on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. We will talk to you all next week.